0: I will talk to you about what does it mean when we say Jesus is the cornerstone of our life. When the scripture tells us this, I think it, especially this particular passage of scripture, it really, it would mean, I think, a lot to the Father that we stopped and just contemplated and thought about that so that we just don't read over it and make it a trite little saying, but we embrace that, what it means. But then I think when we understand it, it really strengthens and encourages us in our walk with Christ and in what He's doing in our lives today. I'm going to read the Scripture, and then I'm going to pray, and then I'd like for you to pray with me for the Poma family. Most of you will remember Bobby Poma that played on the platform with us when Pastor Matt started uh, his church that he was pastoring. <clears throat> we, you know, we just said whoever felt like they wanted to help and to, to help Pastor Matt, well, Bobby and them went and, and helped and were very instrumental in that. But Bobby's brother passed away and I'll be doing his funeral on Friday. And um, so if you'll just help me pray for the family and just... I came in late tonight because I was just wrapping up with his family and his his mother just gave Bobby's mother just gave her heart to Christ two days ago she told me and she's just all tore up and broken up as you would be as I would be but I am just really praying for the grace of God to be manifested in this family so and as we pray let's remember Daryl Lynn and their family as well thank you I have to write things down or I forget them. Thank you for the way you, you loved Marcella Beckman's family here this week. I was talking to Daryl Lynn just before meeting with the family tonight and she just couldn't say enough about how you as a congregation ministered to her family and her friends that we're here and that means the world to me as your pastor and you do that you do it as unto the Lord so let's agree in prayer together tonight Lord I know I said I was going to pray after I read the scripture but sometimes my heart just gets so filled that I have to talk to you and so even though I'm praying for the congregation and for the POMAS and for Daryl family tonight, I'm praying, Lord, because I love you. And I'm so thankful for Jesus more than ever in my life. I'm so thankful that these brief, short years that we spend upon this earth have eternal significance. And I would be terrified... Lord, I would be terrified if it wasn't for the fact that you're the cornerstone. Lord, you made a way and that we can face eternity confidently, not cocky, but confidently because of the atoning blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we look in the Scriptures tonight, I ask you to do for everyone in this room what you've done for me and even more that Lord this saying when we say Christ is the cornerstone he's the cornerstone of my life when we see a church that's named Cornerstone God may we remember this passage of scripture tonight and our hearts and our faith be built up and made strong and help us to leave this place tonight able to share and to serve. I really wish we were doing communion again tonight, Lord, because of the truths of these scriptures. But I pray for the pomas this evening. God, I thank you for your amazing grace that I'll never understand. I thank you that you didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Christ might be saved and I ask that your strength and your peace but Lord the voice of the Holy Spirit that Jesus would be made so real to this family and to all the friends that are going to gather Friday morning oh God make yourself real and draw lost people to yourself even tonight, Lord, I pray as a result of our meeting together that you're going to work deeply and comfort, especially for Mrs. Poma tonight, Mr. Poma, Lord, that you're just going to lay your hands upon them. Thank you for her confession of faith in Christ. Oh, Jesus, I bless you. And I pray for Daryl Lynn and her family and for Mark and his family tonight that, Lord, that big hole that's left in their lives right now, that feeling of, I just want to pick up the phone and call Mama and talk to her, just to hear her voice. Help them to grieve, but to grieve with hope and that the peace of God that passes all understanding would be theirs. In Christ's name, I pray. And Lord, thank you. Thank you for how this Woodland family loved and served and ministered in such a beautiful way, an anointed way, to this family this past week. Which in Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, Amen. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. God bless you. You can be seated tonight. Excuse me. I'm sorry, I pushed that button the wrong way. I think this is a marvelous portion and a pretty important passage of Scripture to, to look at. Because in the ancient world of architecture, and I called Christopher to talk with him after I had done all of my research on architecture and stuff. I well, here's a good excuse to call my son and take advantage of his architectural studies. And we went back to ancient architecture and cornerstones aren't used that very much, aren't used very much anymore because of the modern ways of building. But in the old days of building, the cornerstone was the most important stone that was laid. It had to be perfectly square. If the building was going to be square, it had to be a perfect rectangle. If the building was going to be a rectangle. And what we know as a flat iron building today, those that look like an iron from the top, those lines had to just be drawn just right. And they cut just right. And it had to be a strong and a solid stone. Thank you, Mark. And so if it wasn't cut, at the right angles, then the the building, the house, whatever was being built would not be straight. Pastor Rick, it's like some of these walls around this church. They needed a cornerstone, didn't they? Because we deal a lot of times with walls that aren't straight and things that uh, we think we would have done differently if we had those skills, don't we, Pastor Rick? There's a building in my hometown and It's right, there was a street that was cut years and years ago, and Macon, my hometown, is built and patterned after ancient Babylon. Detroit is built in the shape of a wheel, if I understand correctly, but Macon was built after, modeled after the maps that they had of ancient Babylon, and then later when cotton became king, they had to cut a diagonal street down the middle of the city of Macon, down the hill to because it was just too much effort for the mules and wagons to pull the bales of cotton and make all those turns getting down to the wharf on the Muggy River. So they cut an angle straight through, and by creating an angle, later in years, there was a flat iron building built in Macon. It's still there. It's a beautiful building. And it, you look down on top of it from above, and it looks like a old-fashioned electric iron. But there's a cornerstone for that building. And there are actually some old buildings here in Detroit that I was able to find that they have a cornerstone. And so when you look at this passage, the cornerstone, one of the things that Chris and I were talking about today is that it had to be an incredibly strong stone because all of the weight of the building, because of the way it was laid, would end up laying on top of that cornerstone. And so if the stone was cracked, if the stone had any fissures, if the stone was weak, then the building was going to eventually collapse. And Bob, you're really encouraging me by nodding at me, because I know if you shake your head, I'm getting it wrong here, but the, 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 that, that stone was just so important for what it was doing. But I also found this out, and that is that the cornerstone was the most expensive part of the building. Did you know that? And so today when we see a cornerstone, it's usually just a memorial slab put in with the name of the people who built it and when it was built. And it's not really a cornerstone at all. But in ancient architecture, it was literally by far away the most important part of the stone, the most important part of the building. So as I read this and I look at this tonight, the symbol of the cornerstone means in the Scripture that Jesus is my life's foundation. Jesus is my life's foundation. The scripture says that those of us who trust in Him, what does it mean to trust in Christ as a cornerstone? It means that any other stones that you were building your life upon before you have found to be a weak stone. You may have built your life upon fame. You may have built your life reputation upon money or success or education. Maybe your family or your children, whatever it was that you were banking on. And I guess because I deal so often with so many folks about death, so many times I hear these stories, if I could go back, I would have done this differently, and I would have done this differently. But the most common refrain that I hear is, Pastor, if I could go back, I would have given my life to Jesus a lot earlier. Because these folks that Peter is writing to They had turned from idols. We've already looked at that as we went through chapter one. They've turned from idols and they've come to trust in Christ as a living cornerstone. And that's so much more as I was just recently talking with an educator, an academic, who, who contacted me this past week and wants to have lunch and wants to talk about the teachings of Jesus and part of that conversation came out in my message Sunday morning and that is you're not saved by the teachings of Jesus. The ethics of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus is not what saves us. We're saved by the very life and the blood of Jesus Christ. And we read it together Sunday morning that We not only believe that Christ died for our sins at Calvary, but the confession of faith is that He rose again from the dead. He is a living cornerstone tonight. And as I shared with the staff from something else that had happened just recently, that if you do not confess that Christ is risen from the dead, you have no right to call yourself a Christian. And so these people who deny the resurrection of Christ, the literal physical resurrection of Christ from the dead... Just as surely as it says that, you know, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and that he is risen again from the dead, we serve a living Savior and a living Lord. And as I think about that, Paul says, you are coming to Christ. Excuse me, Peter says, you know, you get so used to saying Paul that you forget even who you're speaking about Sometimes, Peter says, you are coming to Christ who's a living cornerstone of God's temple there's this process of every day that I come to Jesus there's this process of every day I cast my burdens I cast my cares I confess my sins I worship and adore him I once again confess that Lord I need you oh I need you every hour I need you oh bless me now my Savior it's this coming each and every single day And so having said all of what I've said to you tonight, what I believe the application, and I shouldn't say I believe, what the Bible says the application of this is, is that Christ then, the cornerstone, sets the direction of my life. Sets the direction of my life because I'm transferring all the gravity of my life upon Jesus Christ. I am Pledging my allegiance to him. So I need a little help tonight. I want to do something. Jeff Devons, would you come down and join me? Adam, would you come down and join me? Tristan, would you come and help me real quickly? And Mark Wilson, would you come? And I need you right, just meet me right here. I, I need a space to do it. So I want to do the most horrible thing that I can imagine. And I haven't done this since I was a youth pastor. I think we can agree that Jeff is the most muscular and the biggest man among us tonight, right? And you've lost a lot of weight, Jeff, and beefed up. Do you trust us? You trust us. Then I want you to get right here. And Jeff, I won't, no, no, I want you to face that way and step forward just a little bit because you're a little tall. And because in case we miss it, we don't want you to hit your head on that step. So Adam, you get here. Tristan, you get here. Mark, you get there. And Uh, spread out a little bit, spread out. All right, now now face him, because he's... Oh, face him. Oh, oh, yeah. He's going, Jeff, I need you, Jeff, just to lose your center of gravity and throw all your weight. Don't throw it. Just fall backwards on us. Can you do that for me tonight, buddy? Just fall back. Oh! You see what's happened? I'm doing more than being amusing. Once Jeff lost his center of gravity... He was transferring his life. That's a concrete floor down there, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was transferring his life. You trusted us into your hands. You knew we were brothers in Christ. We were not going to let you fall, right? I knew that. You knew that. Give him a hand tonight. That, well, what I want you to see is... Thanks, guys. Oh, thanks, Tristan. Thanks. My point in, in illustrating that to you is this. is just as Jeff was collapsing. Now, at first, I thought, you know what? I can handle Jeff by myself. I'll let him fall in my hands, but then I did the calculus real quick, Jeff, and I can't be your cornerstone, biggin'. You know, and so I looked at Adam, and I thought, no, we better get four of us down here tonight. But Jesus is able... Sorry, Adam, I'm not busting on your buddy, but what I'm saying is, Jesus is able to bear the weight of my life. And not only is he able to bear the weight of my life, just as he took the sins of the world upon himself, he is able to bear the weight of every single one of us and brothers and sisters around the world. I think we should give him a hand of praise tonight. So whenever, and let's go back to my illustration just now. So whenever somebody tells me that I don't know that I'm a Christian, I always ask them, what does that mean? Where is the center of gravity in your life? Sometimes I hear, well, I just try to do the best I can. Well, Christianity is not doing the best I can. Christianity is, it's already been done for me. No amount of my works is going to save me. Or sometimes people say to me, well, I believe in the teachings of Jesus. And I say, well, even the devils believe in the teachings of Jesus. But as a Christian, as a born-again believer, then Christ becomes the very center of our lives. And if He sets the direction of our life, now, just imagine with me if this is the cornerstone. If He sets the direction then the walls are going to be straight. If it's a square, if it's a flat iron building, the walls are going to be um, rectangular or triangular. If he sets the direction of my life, then that says to me, by putting my weight upon Christ, then Christ begins to set the non-negotiables for my life. And so this evening, if Jeff had given way to us, and let's say he couldn't walk, we would have done all the negotiating for Jeff's life. I've been there as a crippled person, you know, where people had to carry me and move me around. They, they, were, they set the negotiables for my life. There was no negotiating. I went where they said go. I ate when they said eat. I was, was toileted when they said toileted. They set The negotiables for my life. And so, if Jesus is the cornerstone, and we sing that the cornerstone, Jesus is the cornerstone, then we have to ask ourselves this question, what are the non-negotiables in my life? What is it that Christ has called me to do? If you'll put that question up there, what are the non-negotiables in my life? It's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? Now, he's not saying you'll be saved by that. But you see, a Christian will want to do what Christ has called them to do. There's a reason that some people think we're fanatical. There are people in this community that know me now, love me, like me, but they think I'm fanatical. And sometimes I forget where I'm at and I say to people, you know, they'll ask me, why are you here? And I say, because I love Jesus. And sometimes I forget the company I'm in. It's just part of me. It's not habit. It's because it's the truth. And, and then I realize, oh my goodness, I bet I just sounded like a religious nut job to them. Just this evening, somebody said to me, and it was, I understand what it was coming from. They said, well, we don't want a real religious service. And I said, well, you don't need to meet with me then. And everybody started laughing. I said, because I'm going to talk about Jesus. And I go, oh, I didn't mean it that way. And I said, I understand, but let's be clear. Jesus says, why do you call him Lord if you don't do what he's going to say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me and listens to my teaching and then follows it. Now, the teachings of Jesus are meant to free us. They're not meant to, 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 to bound us up. They're not meant to take away the joy from our life. I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It is like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on a solid rock. And when the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it's well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds his house right on the ground without a foundation. And when the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. So I'd like you to take a moment, and I give you five, you don't have to fill them all out. But at least write down one non-negotiable in your life. It, just to kind of help you get started, some of the non-negotiables for Becky and I, and, and I haven't run this by Becky for her approval, but I know this is how we've lived our lives, is hospitality. We've always welcomed people into our home because we believe the Bible teaches us that we're supposed to welcome people into our home another non-negotiable for us is, is prayer. Another non-negotiable for us is forgiveness. Another non-negotiable for us is generosity, sacrificial giving. Those are, and I could, and I don't want to think for just a moment, what are some non-negotiables in your life based upon your faith in Christ? And I'll just wait about 30 seconds and so you can write. Let me give you an example of when I had to learn this in a real way. When our first two boys were real young, before Benjamin was born, Andrew had, um, Becky call me. I wasn't even in the district office yet, but Becky called me, and, and I was trying to save money money was really tight in those days. and um, This is back in 86, baby, 86. It cost us $50 a week to diaper and feed our babies, feed our two boys. That was a lot of money for a young couple in those days with a congregation of about 20, 25 people. And, uh, so I had bought some discount diapers I found on sale. That'll help you understand where I'm going here. Becky called me, she says, Andrew's diaper is full of blood. And I said, rush, don't call 911, rush him straight to Dr. Calais' office and I'll meet you there. And so we got there about the same time and I was terrified, my heart was pounding, I was crying and we rushed in and Dr. Calais took Andrew's diaper off and he turned around and he says, that's not blood, that's just the chemical reaction (laughs) to <laughs> the urine in the diaper. I grabbed him and hugged him, and, and he started laughing. And, you know, he's a good friend. He's a missionary's uh, son, and he's our pediatrician. But then my tears turned to joy. And you could go back in my journals and read this. And I learned that night, God, how easily my faith was shaken How easily I lost my peace and how I panicked. You see, if you want to know if Christ is the cornerstone of your life, what makes you panic? If you want to know if Christ is the cornerstone of your life, what makes you shake? Because when Jesus said these words, build your life upon me and my teachings. Do what I say. And remember, the lines will be straight. You set the direction of your life. You will be secure. I've never wrestled with that panic again, not even when Andrew was in Iraq. I've never wrestled with that panic again the way I wrestled that day because I had to come to terms. The Lord gave us those children and the Lord was going to take care of them. Does that make sense? So I think this is an illustration. When you have those non-negotiables, I trust my family to the Lord. The second thing I'd like you to see tonight is is if Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of my life, that means I've been born again, I'm beloved, and I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you'll notice, I capitalized the Lord there because I want you to understand that Jesus is God. God came down in Christ. And just as God will never let your dreams and hopes be shattered when your life rests upon Him as the cornerstone." You need to understand why. It's not just for the glory of God, although I think that's the overwhelming aspect of it. I think God calls us to glorify Him and in everything. I think God delights in His own glory. Not that He's a braggart. That, I've preached on that before if you've never heard me, and I'm happy to talk to you about that tonight. But the glory of God is the greatest thing in the world. But this glorious God loved us so much that He came and died for our sins. And when we're born again, what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord, He said He's the Master. The ba- he's in charge of everything. There's no questions. So my son, when he meets a colonel, yes, sir. My son, when he... Meets a a major, yes sir. Meets a general, yes sir. They say something, he doesn't say, I'll think about it, or I'll do it if I want to. Because he understands lordship a lot better than some of us understand lordship. In theology, let let me just give you a 50 cent phrase. In theology, we call this federal headship. And by that we mean there can only be one in charge. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus, I'm not the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. I'm an under-shepherd under Jesus. I've been called by Him, ordained by Him, appointed by Him. But Jesus is the head of the church. So when you say that He that we are begin, we're, we're born again, we're beloved, we belong to Him. What you're saying is that no matter what goes on in life, your life is set free but constrained by the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. So therefore, when teenagers say, what would Jesus do? That's a pretty doggone good question. That's a pretty good question. What would Jesus do? So there are times in my life when I stop and think before I go to bed and before I pray silently, Lord, if I've committed any sins today, if I've been unkind, if I've said something, if I've disobeyed, forgive me. Make my dreams, make my thoughts, my meditations pleasing to you. And I wait if I can. A lot of times I just fall right asleep. But I wait, and if he brings something to mind, I confess it, but then I'll say, Lord, if this is my last night on earth, then I'm ready to see you. I want to see you. I don't want to leave Becky. I don't want to leave the kids. I don't want to leave you, this church, but this is my last night on earth. And I guarantee you that when you wake up the next morning, that thought is in your mind. If this is my last day on earth, How do I want to live it? And that's what we mean when we say we're born again, we're beloved, but we belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And why people struggle with that concept. I belong to her. She belongs to me. I belong to you. That says I don't entertain other invitations. For me, it would be almost like spiritual adultery There's a sense of belonging. Do you follow what I'm saying? You belong to one another. We belong to Christ, and he sets the direction. So, I think this will help you understand this next passage. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. Read it with me. Chosen and precious. One more time. Chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. In your outline, circle that phrase, I am laying. I am laying. If you'll notice, I'm using all ESV. So if you've got your little journal Bibles, just circle that. And um, I I think you're going to really appreciate this more and more so and I'm, I'm trying to be very deliberate with this because I don't ever want you to, this is a message I hope you never forget, this is a message in a few years you may hear on a Sunday morning and you'll go, oh I've heard that but don't you dare go to sleep because I'll call you out if, let me come down from the platform for just a moment therefore if Jesus is the truest and the most expensive, most valuable, most precious stone in this spiritual temple being built, our living Lord. Then he says, All of us who have been born again, you and Dorinda, you and Jen, you, Tristan, have you given your heart to Jesus? And you and you and you were living stones too and we're being built in packed tight together. (laughs) Have you ever... I'm sorry Tristan. (laughs) Have you ever watched a bricklayer or a stonemason? I'm going to be a little mean here, buddy. You you got a good shoulder? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever seen them do that? I've seen them do that at my house. And they get it and they pack it in there because... The tighter they are, the stronger the building is. And all of that weight in ancient architecture, we don't do that anymore, but they would have understood this. Jesus is bearing all of that up. And there is nothing that you or I have as a congregation or the church that Jesus is not able to bear tonight. Can we give him a hand of praise for that? Thanks, Tristan. I'm telling you, He's already bore it anyway. He bore all my sins. He bore all my diseases. He bore all my iniquities to Calvary. And He has been raised again from the dead. Uh, Look at this. John chapter 1 verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is Himself God, that's Jesus, is near to the Father's heart and He has revealed God to us. And you know, you're never going to see that in all of its riches, I want you don't miss what I'm going to say here. You're never going to see that in all of its riches until your heart is completely ravished by the love of God. I don't remember the song it was that we used to sing here. Mark, it predates your days with us, but one of the phrases was, He ravishes me with his love. And sometimes I would stand there where Becky's sitting right now, and I would just think how much he loved us, and then I'd say, "God, help me to ravish you." And one day, just thinking about that, I forgot I was even supposed to come up to the platform. I mean, we had stopped, and I was so caught up in that moment, "I want to ravish you, Lord." And suddenly, when I realized God... Anything that keeps me from loving you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I want that removed from my life. And how do you know that? Because your life doesn't panic when storms come and you keep doing what God has called us to do. We're not saved by that, but that's just who we are as believers. Now look at this Quote, this is from John Flavel. He's a Puritan pastor and author. And anything you read by Flaffle is good. But he says God is the fountain, the ocean, the center of joy. And Jesus lay in the very bosom of the fountain of joy. Day in and day out, the Father immediately, fully, everlastingly, Let out this overpowering bliss and rapture and ecstasy and delight in the soul of Jesus. No one has ever experienced such glorious joy. As Jesus said in John 17, verse 5, Father, glorify me with the glory I had before the world began. He is chosen and precious to the Father, and the Father treasures Him. I wish I could preach the way He writes I hope that's in your outline. You, it, it should be in the app later. But you've got to treasure. Don't ever let anybody tell you the Puritans were killjoys. The Puritans knew and understood some of the richest and deepest teachings about Christ and His church and marriage and love and sexuality you'll find in the writings of the Puritans. And so as he writes this, this perfect relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then I have to ask myself, if it was the most expensive, the most tried cornerstone upon which you and I would transfer the gravity of our life and He would bear the weight of all of our sins, our trespasses and our iniquities, and everything else that would come, what did it cost Jesus? What did it cost God to lay that cornerstone? And I think that's a good question for us to meditate on this week. What did it cost God to send Christ to be born in a manger? What did it cost God for Christ to grow up in a Roman-occupied Palestine? Or did it cost God to be rejected by the people of Israel? What did it cost God Maybe that will help us understand a little bit at about three o'clock in Matthew 27, 46. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those times when a wife comes to me and says, my husband has left us and the children. Those times, a husband comes to me and says, my wife has left us for another. I would rather deal with a family and death than to deal with those. They're the kind that she will tell you, I'll come home and sometimes just have to get up and walk at night. I've never felt that kind of abandonment in my life so I'm so clumsy at even trying to communicate it some of you could probably communicate it much better than me but God turned his back upon his only begotten son that was the cost and we don't get that remember the stories I've told you in Ethiopia The boys from Teen Challenge that even though they had been saved and set free because all they'd ever done was eat out of dumpsters, we'd give them clean, healthy food, and we had to watch them to keep them from going to the dumpster to mix garbage, rotted, maggot-filled garbage in with their clean food until they developed a taste for what was clean. You and I don't understand that because like David says, we were conceived and born in sin. So tonight, when I say Jesus is the cornerstone, he's the most valuable, he's the most true, and he bears the weight of the world, it says something to me. But it says, i got to say it again, it says, I am loved. You are loved. Look at me, look at me, don't miss this. It says, I can risk loving you, Vic. I can risk loving you, I can risk loving you, Jim. I, because I'm loved, I can take the risk of loving other people. Because I'm loved, I can not only risk loving you because you're lovely and you're wonderful, you're godly people, but I can love those that are not godly. And because sometimes it's easy to love the likable sinners, because I am loved, I can love my enemies as well. Why? Because my life rests not upon the resources I draw for myself, but upon the cornerstone of Christ Jesus. That changes everything. Look at this. John 17, verse 23. I am in them, and you are in me. And may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me. Read this with me. I don't want you to miss it. And that you love them as much as you love me. Would you read that again? (laughs) Do you believe that? That you love them as much as you love me. Do you believe that? God loves you as much as he loves Jesus. Oh, for the love of heaven. Why doesn't that make you stand to your feet and shout tonight? He loves you as much as he loves Jesus. That makes my little boy jump up and down inside and I have to leave the study and walk in here today and just keep my voice down because I wanted to scream, you love me just like you love Jesus. I'm not trying to be dramatic, but boom. I remember the night Well, Becky finally said she loved me. Oh, my goodness. I was walking on air. I walked into my apartment that I share with my my classmates that they're in Lakeland. And they looked at me and says, "Uh uh-oh. They knew from the look on my face I was loved. They were surprised somebody loved me. Don't ask too many questions, Mark. (laughs) You're loved. I'm sorry. God loves you as much as He loves Jesus. Don't ever let there be any lack of self-esteem among the people of God. God loves us. When you believe in Jesus... The Father loves you just the way He loves the Son. And finally, Jesus has to become the love of my life. He has to become the love love of my life. Now, I fiddled around several ways to write this, and finally I just settled on the simplest because we grow in love with Jesus. And to answer your question, no, I didn't. It wasn't that I didn't love her. But those words weren't coming out of my mouth until I was sure. And I did love her. But I knew several things marriage is a long, long haul. And I knew what God had called me to, and I knew the kind of health that I had. And so it took a while for me to be able to admit to myself and finally to her. But I grew during that whole time. And the longer you serve Jesus the more you love Him. When I look back at my love, remember I told you I measured my life in decades? When I look back 10 years ago, I don't love Jesus anything like I loved Him then. I don't love her anything like I loved her then, like I love her now. I don't love you. I didn't love you as much 10 years ago as I love you now. Because love grows, and it consumes us. So much so, First Peter chapter two says, "Now to you who believe this stone is precious? This stone is precious. I mean, <clears throat> I have to get the image of Golem out of my mind, and Lord of the Rings talking about my precious. And I have to go back to what it really means, my precious. And there's an old song that says, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than wealth untold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches or fame. I'd rather have Jesus, and I can't remember the rest, than anything but to meet his hand extended, reaching out to the oppressed, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords to give. If you were sick and dying tonight, you would trade everything you have for another year of life with your children and grandchildren, your husband or wife. You'd sell your house. If she was ill and dying, everything we have, I would give in exchange for her life. That's why we never complained. We look back now and we say, God, how? How do we do $50 a week just for diapers and formula and all the other expenses that we had? But for us, it was never a burden. It was a lot of prayer from time to time, wasn't it, Becky? We were just so grateful that God gave us a family. And then I laughed because as I was meditating this afternoon, I remember when Ben was younger, and he wanted something, and I said, son, we can't afford that. He just looked at me and shook his head and says, why couldn't a rich family have adopted me? (laughs) Oh, no, don't He was just a little guy. I'd rather have Jesus than anything. And when you come to that place in life, then you know Jesus has become the love of your life. So I ask you about being fanatical tonight. Do you know why people think you're fanatical when you become a passionate follower of Christ? It's because Jesus means more to you than silver or gold, wealth untold, riches, fame, relationships, Sons or daughters, wives or husbands. Jesus means more to you than anything. You would give everything you have for Jesus. It's why, it's why we open up our homes with radical hospitality. It's why we go beyond our tithe and we give to a missionary like Mark and Casey Thompson going to Kazakhstan because people need to hear the gospel. It's why we give to feed the hungry. It's it's why we give in our Christmas offering. It's why tonight orphans are eating around the world because you have a fanatical love for Jesus. It's why tonight children have a home in parts of the world because you have a fanatical love for Jesus. Because when you love Jesus more than anything, then people are going to think, you're crazy. Look at me. There are people that think, I'm crazy. Well, that's okay. I'm in good company. If we have been mad, it was for God's glory. If we are perfectly sane, it's for your benefit. At any rate, there's been no selfish motive. The very spring of our actions is the love of Christ. We look at it like this. If one died for all men, then in a sense they all died. And his purpose in dying for them is that their lives should now be no longer lived for themselves, but for him who died and rose again for them. Underline that phrase, if one died for all men, then in a sense they all died. That's that phrase Federal headship that I was talking to you about just now. Adam is the federal head of the human race. When he sinned, we all sinned. And Jesus is the federal head of the church. When he died for our sins, all who put their faith in him become righteous. Not because of anything they've done, but because the cornerstone is faithful and true. Eugene Peterson has mentored me through his books. But in an interview with his wife that he recorded in one of his books on being a pastor, I have taken a little liberties with it. He asked Jan, his wife, what does being a pastor's wife mean? And when I read this, I was like, this is what being a member of the body of Christ is. Being a member of Woodland Church is a vocation, a way of life. It means participation in an intricate web of hospitality, living at the intersection of human need and God's grace. Inhabiting a community where men and women who don't fit are welcomed, where neglected children are noticed, where the stories of Jesus are told, and people who have no stories find they do have stories. Stories that are part of the Jesus story. Being a member of Woodley, Woodland Church places us strategically yet unobtrusively at a heavily trafficked intersection between heaven and earth. What does that mean? We give sacrificially, we share the gospel, we practice hospitality, and we are unafraid or we don't panic because we are totally in love with Jesus Christ. But there's one final warning and I don't have time to deal with it. Jesus says to those who refuse to trust him, he becomes a stumbling block. If you'll go to the next slide there, for the untrusting is a stone to trip over, a boulder blocking the way. The trip, They trip and fall because they refuse to obey, just as predicted. So Brent Hume, you were right. When Mr. Hume said on television, on the news one night, I don't know what it is about Jesus. But Jesus divides people. Jesus separates people. And he said just the name of Jesus, our prayer in the name of Jesus, publicly makes some people totally furious. Because if you reject him, he becomes not the cornerstone, but a big old boulder that you'll trip over. I hope you've enjoyed this tonight. I hope this helps you understand what the cornerstone means. And I am sorry for being so emotional and long-winded tonight. Next week, I'll be worse. Let's stand and pray. <laughs> I love you, Jesus, with all of my heart. And I pray, God, that my emotions have not gotten in the way and that people have heard the word and not seen an emotional display. But, God, that they walk out of this place knowing they are beloved, they are born again, and they belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in your holy name I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. I love you a lot.